This week, Doug and I talk about secure coding practices. In the news, Alibaba's cloud security team discloses an Apache Spark REST API exploit. Comcast security flaws exposed partial addresses and social security numbers for 26 million customers. And how Facebook's plan to partner with banks raises privacy concerns. Stay tuned for all that and more on this episode of Application Security Weekly. This is a Security Weekly production. Layered Insight is the industry's first embedded security approach for containers. Trusted by Global 1000 Enterprises to secure their containerized applications, it's the only solution that requires no root privileges, has zero dependency on the underlying infrastructure, and is fully portable across any container environment. Unified DevOps and SecOps, enabling the rapid development of containerized applications without worrying about security. To learn more, please visit layeredinsight.com forward slash ASW. Rapid7 powers the practice of SecOps. Using shared data, analytics, and automated workflows, SecOps unites IT, DevOps, and security teams to make security an outcome of innovation. Rapid7 combines technology, expertise, and advocacy to drive vulnerability management, application security, incident detection, and log management for more than 7,000 organizations worldwide. Power up your SecOps practice with a free trial at rapid7.com forward slash securityweekly. Hard-coded credentials can be trouble, but not as much trouble as a vulnerable DevOps environment. If you want protection without the hassle of security slowing you down, CyberArk, the number one provider in privilege access security, has the solution for you. With CyberArk Conjure, developers can easily secure secrets across any DevOps toolchain or platform, whether your application runs in the cloud or on-premises. Eliminate the headaches of managing secrets and try Conjure open source for free with no strings attached. Visit conjure.org forward slash ASW to get started today. Welcome, everyone, to episode 28, our 29th episode of Application Security Weekly. I am, of course, your host, Keith Hoodlet, and I'm excited to be joined by my clever co-host, Mr., excuse me, Dr. Doug White. Doug, welcome to the show. Hi, I get to be on Application Security Weekly. You don't, well, Keith does, but, but the, rest <laughs> of you, the rest of you don't. So, yeah, I am really happy to be here because I, I love attention, and when I get to be on really cool shows like this, it's exciting. Well, it's good to have you back. I know that we had you on, gosh, I feel like it was 20 plus episodes ago at this point, but uh, but Paul was out for something and, and he, you know, pinch hit for him that day and it was great. And so we're super glad to have you back, especially uh, because in this case, we want to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, development and insecure coding practices, which I know that as a professor uh, at, let me guess, Salva Regina University, if I'm not mistaken. Um, is that it? Am I accurate on that? No, uh, you said the bad Roger S Williams. word. We don't say that word here. Look at my shirt. Yeah, it's Roger no, Williams. I know the mic's but Yeah, it's Roger Williams. It's okay. Roger Williams University. So, uh, you know, as a as a professor that teaches uh, development and you know programming to students, I wanted to make sure we talked uh, a little bit about secure coding practices in general uh, for our audience. I like that. Yeah, I, I think we should always talk about secure coding practices. It's really hard to talk about it because a lot of uh, students and a lot of other people. It, it's one of those things that's just so all-inclusive and not inclusive that it's really challenging to find where do you inject. I mean, I know the, the, you know, the academic answer is everywhere. It's always a part of it. 
but it's not. I mean, it's like trying to teach people neurosurgery while they're taking basic anatomy, and it's really challenging. Speaking of neurosurgery and basic anatomy, by the way, a couple of quick announcements. So first, uh, we do have a webcast with Endgame being held on August 16th, so that is later this week, uh, from 3 to 4 p.m. on fishing prevention. So go to securityweekly.com slash Endgame to register. I don't think it'll be neurosurgery, but I know that fishing is a is a prevalent problem everywhere. And uh, well, quite frankly, you know, it's a good thing that we're covering it with such a talented group of folks over at Endgame. Also, again, not neurosurgery, but important. Uh, Thermo Fisher Scientific, my employer, is hiring. Specifically, I'm hiring. I'm actually looking for two openings uh, right now. I have an application security engineer as well as a senior application security engineer. So if you go to wiki.securityweekly.com and click on episode 28, it is under the announcements section with links directly to apply. If you have questions, hit me up, hoodie at securityweekly.com. Happy to answer uh, any questions you might have after looking at the job descriptions. So with that, Secure coding. Uh, I feel like, you, you know, just before the show, Doug, we were talking and you made up, uh, you didn't make up rather, but you brought up uh, several good points, which is uh, it's a little bit like, you know, trying to tell your students how to build a bridge when they don't necessarily know all of the physics that go into building a bridge. And, and so development and secure coding practices, what are some of the problems that you see at least, uh, you know, especially with some of the students that you're teaching uh, C++ and Python to, you know, is it the early students you're getting them as freshmen or sophomores? And what sort of challenges are, are they facing, uh, let alone, you know, facing uh, uh, security problems? Well, it, you know, there's a lot of different analogies for this. I mean, there really are. And sorry, I was applying for those jobs right now. But um, um, it, it's very, very frightening because, one, you're in a, in a language environment you don't understand. So it's like, okay, so take yourself and put yourself in a foreign country where they don't speak the language that you speak and you don't speak the language they speak. So you're, you're surrounded by this. And now you're being asked to, to order crepes. Uh, at the French restaurant and you don't know how to speak French and they don't speak English. And so that, that's the first part of the problem is it's like, how do I say strawberry in French? I, I want a strawberry in my crepe. Difficult. But now let's add to that, that there are people all around you who may want to throw something awful in your crepe while they're making it. And you're, all you're really worried about is I want a strawberry in my, my crepe. And all the people around you are like, I'm going to throw, you know, refuse and, and, and dog poop and all these things into your food while it's being made. And the cook just wants to make the food. You just want to tell them what you want. And in the meantime, there are other people shouting all kinds of things and telling you how to say the wrong thing in French and you end up in a giant mess. And that's really, really challenging because you've got students that are intimidated. I mean, programming is one of the classic things of intimidation. I mean, if you go to any school anywhere and you ask people, what are the classes you don't want to take? It's calculus. It's biology, programming. I get that constantly from people saying, well, I wouldn't have to take a lot of programming in this. And you're like, what? Like, yes. And then they're like, okay, what else could I major in? And that that's a scary business. And then once you add to that the idea that not only do you need to code it, do you figure out a way to put this on the screen and make it work, there are going to be people all around trying to damage that. That's problem one. The second part of the problem is most people. So remember, when we're dealing with freshman students or freshmen and grad school students, those are most people. They're not people that were just predestined to do this. Some of us have that kind of brain set from day one and trained up as engineers on the backside. But most people that are going into computer science engineering are people that like to solve problems. 
They're not people that like to think about how to unsolve the problem or how to break the problem. They're the people that want to solve the Rubik's Cube. Like when I got a Rubik's Cube, you know, I was like, how can I take this apart and put it back together again so that it's solved? Instead of like, well, let me turn all these sides and spend 15 minutes figuring it out. I was just like, if I took all these cubes off and stuck them back on the right way, the thing is solved. Yay, I'm better than you. But, and that's the security side of the world. How do I get in the window? Whereas the, the, the most people say, I open the window. But the security people say, could I pick the lock? Could I break the glass? Could I go around and come in a door? And all of a sudden, it's a much more complex problem for freshman programming students who are already scared to death of that first programming class because they've heard all these horror stories. They don't know what they're going to do. And they're like, oh, no, I'm going to be dealing with a language I don't understand. And people are going to be trying to hurt me at the same time. So all that comes together to create this really, really scary problem of how do you teach people secure coding rather than just coding. Absolutely. Right. And to that end, it's it's interesting because I remember when I was taking classes a few years ago in computer science, and it's it's funny that you mentioned there were people that were, quote unquote, you know, destined to do this. My degree is in psychology, right? Like yep. I, I just happened to love writing code and, and taught myself a lot of these things in my free time and ultimately did go back and take classes for a couple of years at university. And, and what you point out was absolutely true. There was a there was almost a, a point where you'd anticipate a cutoff, right? Whether it was freshman year or whether it was first semester of sophomore year, there was always one or two classes that were really uh, almost built to to weed out those students that really wanted to uh, actually write code versus those that just kind of had a, a, you know, a little bit of an interest in it. I, I, I taught that if, class. <laughs> so, right. I don't know if, if that's done on purpose or if that's done, uh, you know, to make sure that those that that pursue the the craft further uh, really do have the passion that they need to. Well, to, you know, I, I, yeah. So let me tell you about that. So as a psych person, you'll get it. So to me in the world, I've, I've met people who are great programmers who came from all different strata. So, and the best programmers I ever encountered came from weird backgrounds because they thought outside the framework. They, they didn't always solve it the same way every time because there are accounting type programmers, sorry, accountants, there are accounting type programmers who fit really well into this corporate DevOps model of box one, check, box two, check, box three, check. And they're very effective. But the problem is you if you get a person from a music background or a person from a psych background or just something totally different, like I used to empty the trash, now I'm coding the hell out of it. Those people do new and interesting and innovative things, which is really, really cool. The problem is once again, you come back to this issue of how do we get through the DevOps? How do we get through the waterfall model? And, and as you get into more mature situations, what happens is those DevOps steps become these ironclad boxes that the real yep. objective is no longer quality code. The real objective is getting that box signed off because I've been stuck in those things many times and I don't care about anything except getting that box checked. And if that box says X, Y, and Z, you do X, Y, and Z, and you check the box. Now, you really need to be thinking about Z prime and Q and that squiggly thing down there that's not even a letter, but you don't want to think about those because if you introduce those into that part of the DevOps, you are doomed forever to being stuck in the DevOps loop because when you take that back to the person who signs it, they go, you, you did X, Y, and Z, and there's a squiggly thing here. Uh, no, no, no. You have to go back to step one to get the squiggly thing back into the model. And when you get into those modes, you have a lot of problems. So it's very difficult to say who gets, who gets sorted into and who gets sorted out. I'm a big fan of just bring them all in. I was always in the model of everybody in, not many out. 
And that meant that that's the weed out thing you're talking about. I, I love the idea get a room with a thousand people in it and 30 of them become programmers. I think that's a good model. School's not so much fans of that anymore because it, it makes universities really, really nervous because we used to have the model of not everybody can do this. Now we have the model of everyone's capable. It's the instructor who's not doing a good job. Ah, yeah. So it's it's also the other problem, which is, you know, graduation rates, right? Like if uh, if they continue to take the classes, but they fail the class, they can't really do the programming, but they're learning something. Yeah, it's it gets messy. And, and needless to say, what I, I started thinking about with a lot of the classes that I took is – First of all, in a university uh, setting, you don't encounter a lot of the problems that you're going to ultimately encounter in the real world that lead to vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. Good example is authentication and password management. Yep. I don't think, uh, you know, the two years of classes that I took, I ever once had to write an application that had any form of authentication mechanism. Right. Right. Like, <laughs> uh, it's almost uh, it's weird, right? It's almost as though universities teach to the whiteboard type application. Uh, assessments that you might get when you're going and interviewing at, say, Google, right? Yep. But they don't ultimately teach you the useful skills that you need to do different things like input validation or yep. output encoding, which, by the way, those two things aren't necessarily security related, right? Input validation is where a name field exists. You didn't put numbers. You put a, a name, well, right? Well, here, here's another good example. When I, was an so, when I was an undergraduate and I took computer science too, I had already been coding for a while because I started coding when I was like 14. But when I took computer science too, the first assignment was you had to steal the assignment from the instructor's folder huh, on the really? system. And he said, if you get caught, you get an F. So now, now me being me, the first thing I did was go in and hack somebody's credentials on the system and use their credentials to steal the stuff out of the instructor's folders. So if I got caught, it's on them. And, and this was a very positive experience for everybody involved because everybody there was, was in the game, you know? I mean, and it was very common on those old mainframe systems. A lot of people were trying to hack things. People wrote malware, booby traps, all kinds of nasty stuff. I said that, I was telling that same story to somebody at a university maybe 10 years ago. And that person looked at me like I had just suggested that, you know, we teach students using like, if you get the question wrong, we blow towards your feet. And I mean, they were like, that's the most unethical thing I've ever heard of in my life. And I was like, Why? I mean, they were teaching us to, to be good at our jobs and to think through the problem and to think about how, and stuff like credential validation. I use strong passwords before anybody even knew what it was called because I did not want somebody in freshman engineering class hacking my account. So I made up really ridiculous passwords. Everybody else using passwords like 777. I was like making up these long passwords and I actually was teaching myself how to do passphrasing and stuff with like weird switches so nobody could hack my account. And that was just stuff. And this was in the eighties. So people weren't really thinking like that, but they need to be. And today it's really tough. And you get that combination of what you were saying about retention funding, which means that states come in and go, everybody graduates. Uh, a lot of states have made that horrible mistake. They started saying, we're going to cut your funding if you don't graduate hundred percent of the, of the students. That's a big right. mistake. That was not a university idea from way back when. That combined with this whole sort of, we can't teach people that, that would be bad. And all that starts going right back into secure coding. It's like, how do you teach people pen testing? First time I ever taught pen testing, I got, I was in a newspaper because people were going, professors teaching hacking needs to be fired. How outrageous. 
And it's like, we're just teaching people skills they need to know. And they're like, this is outrage, like teaching police officers to break into cars. I'm like, yeah, yeah, they, they do that, actually. So the police right, are, that's actually something they do on a regular Exactly. <laughs> but, I mean, I got all this pushback from, like, administration and faculty and all these people because it just turns into this giant miasma the minute security gets involved in it. And it's tough to teach because the minute you start, you know, being the kind of deaf con kind of, you know, hey, hack this, all of a sudden you got students complaining because it's hard. And students complain to their parents and say, oh, that professor is making me break into something. And you're going to be getting a call from the university administration about a week later going, why are you teaching students to break into things? This is a threat to our entire environment and way of life. It must be stopped right now. Go back to the waterfall you know, model. You know what's hilarious is uh, there are some schools, though, like on the flip side of it, right? So I always think back to like Carnegie Mellon University, Rochester Institute of Technology. Uh, there are probably a number of others that I'm not even thinking of right now, but those are the two that come to mind that they specialize in teaching exploit development and, you know, security in, in different uh, formats. So, um, well, that's maturing now. So, so you're seeing yeah. that come around because people in the university realize we're a university. We're supposed to teach people. We're supposed to train them to think. We're supposed to train them to be better, not just give them a checklist and say, here, do these five steps and your code will be done and all will be well. People, the universities that are teaching people to think, that's what we need to be doing. And, and that's what, that was the whole idea of university since the ancient Greeks started it was when you feel like you've learned enough to do the job, you can leave. I mean, that's how the Greeks did it. And, you know, you, you get Plato to sign off on your philosophy and you can go out and find your own benefactor. <laughs> right. <laughs> so what, what is interesting about this entire conversation as well, especially because OWASP provides both the secure coding practices and a secure coding cheat sheet, which we've linked to in the show notes for any of our listeners on the development side, or heck, even on the application security side that want to make sure that their developers are following those things. Uh, one of the things that you find a lot of people discuss, and in fact, I think Wendy Nather and a few other folks were discussing it on Twitter just last week during uh, Hacker Summer Camp, which is we need a, uh, how do they put it? Like a code of uh, like a building code of standards or building standards type code for the way that development works. And I think that the the short sighted idea is sure, that sounds wonderful, except that anyone can go and learn to code because all of that is readily available on the Internet. And by the way, those things called boot camps are never going to teach you to follow like right. the, the building standards model of writing code. Right. It's just here's writing some code. Um, so, so, you know, circling back on secure coding practices, it's interesting because it's almost a, a situation where you have to know the language well enough to actually then start encountering the problems that I think secure coding involves, such as, uh, you know, database security or system configuration yep. or even just data protection, right? Which is such a huge deal these days with GDPR. Um, but the other side of it is even for someone, you know, like myself, where I know Java, C, C++, Bash, Python, uh, a bit of JavaScript, I'm, I'm learning JavaScript in a bit more depth now. And I'm thinking to myself, there's a lot of things in JavaScript that, you know, I didn't know. And it just still seems weird to me as a, you know, as someone that writes code. And then I, I haven't even started to touch on any of the security practices, right? So you you have that other problem, which is things change so fast in the programming language, uh, you know, world, whether it's JavaScript, whether it's, you know, uh, Java-based or, excuse me, JavaScript-based frameworks like React or Angular or even Vue.js, for example. They just change so fast that it's almost as though when you're teaching students about secure coding, you don't teach the exact practice of secure coding, you teach the idea, right? So input yeah. validation is 
what should be coming in here? Like whitelist the set right. of characters that should be entering into this field uh, that you are willing to accept. Yeah. Uh, output encoding. Like how do you want it to actually be displayed back? And are you carefully, you know, about uh, carefully thinking about what you're willing to accept as input? And then remember, on every one of those steps too, there's the there's not just the engineering solution. You know, it's like the error trapping is part of engineering. It's like, well, I want a truck to go across the bridge. The bridge has to hold that much weight. So that's error trapping. But now start injecting things into it that nobody thought about. And one thing I've been I've been talking about a lot to students is is what I call distributed problems. And we see more now the use of pre-built components. So this is a oh, yeah. this is a happy problem. So take something like Scratch, which is a teaching language that's object oriented or whatever. Great tool to teach people how object oriented programming works. The problem is a lot of the objects you're using were built by someone else. And we see that problem becoming more pronounced as we add cloud-based features where we can pull things in on the fly. We see pre-built engines like uh, the Unreal Engine or some of those kind of things for gaming. And you say, I just want my game to work. I'm going to pull these characters in and this and then mod it. So now it's not, we're getting even more distributed. So now it's not, so I'm going to use this. I'm going to take these pieces I got over here. So I'm going to go over here and I'm going to grab these pieces off GitHub. I'm going to go grab these pieces out of this mod library I found and put those into my product as well. They're cool things. And then all, I mean, I noticed this first. I was, I was fooling with this game called SimCity once as somebody sent me in, and it was a really famous game. And it was really famous, not just because it was a famous game, but it was famous because it was the first time I saw a game. I used to teach game programming a long time ago. It was the first game I saw where they invited the end users, the pathetic loser end users that you're working for out there in the world. Sorry, end users, but you know, uh, the coders were allowing these people to actually inject things into this game. And they not only, they were encouraging it. And the game turned to this giant miasma of weirdness. You know, so it's like all this stuff. And it, and it had every level of quality from like end user, you know, developed, doesn't work, weird, caused the screen to flicker, to like these really sophisticated things that some 12-year-old kid put together in Hong Kong. And people were just slapping these things into their game and their system. And they didn't even think about it. And I'm like, wow, what could that cause? I mean, is that game, I mean, I, I started looking at how is that game running on my system? Is it running as root? Uh, yeah. Uh, could you put a building mod in there that actually affects my system? And yeah. And I got really scared of that stuff. And we see that now in commercial development because people are starting to use that distributed modded world. And they say, here's a way to build an input module. It's already built. I'm just going to pull it in and use it. And, and maybe somebody then mods that in the back office, you know, later or GitHub, somebody, you know, puts a new, uh, a, a new uh, build in there and you don't even know it because all your builds are being updated without your knowledge. It's scary. The funny thing is, is what you're describing is exactly the problem that we face with the world of JavaScript today with node modules. So yep. node package manager, you know, mm -hmm. pulls down all these different node modules and does exactly what you're describing. And, and the problem here is, first of all, most of the node modules that you pull down have dependencies on dependencies. Mm -hmm. And secondly, uh, some of the, no the modules that you're pulling down are built into the JavaScript language that you just don't know about because it's just easier to type npm install minus minus save, whatever, uh, as opposed to like taking the five seconds to look at the JavaScript documentation and say, oh yeah, based on the way that the API works, like this is you know what I can call and then I'm done. Um, and so 
Yeah, it, more and more, I think that uh, what we're finding is it's no longer the craft of software development or software engineering. It's the ability to, you know, like Lego blocks, put things together in yeah. a formation that's required of you by uh, your scrum master or your Jira ticket that you've been assigned or what, what <laughs> and, have you. And I have a name for uh, this. I have a name for it. I call okay. it gentuemia. Uh So you have contracted gentuemia. and And I'll tell you how I got it. Um, we all know Gen 2. We all love Gen 2. But when Gen 2 first came out, uh, a friend of mine challenged me to get Gen 2 running on his machine. And so I, I said, challenge accepted. What I learned by working with these like Linux and Gen 2 type systems was Gen 2 used to come and it had almost no drivers. It had almost no anything with it. It was a nightmare. And you, you found yourself in this just like slash and burn problem solving mode. You no longer think about anything other than, I will make this work. I will make this work. The video driver will work. It will. No, it will. I swear, I, it will work. It will work. And, and all of a sudden, you're just downloading all kinds of stuff and building it and downloading it and building it and downloading it and building it. And you don't even know after a little while. Like, at first, you take notes. You're writing them down. And you're going, added build 10579 of this driver. And you're really nice in engineering about it. By 12 hours later, when you've had 96 cups of coffee and now you're pouring whiskey in the coffee and, and, and vodka in the Red Bull or whatever works for you, you're just like, all the notes are in the floor under the empty pizza boxes and you're going, work, 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 damn you, work, work, work. And, and then all of a sudden it works and you go, done, I'm out. And I have no idea what I just did or what I pulled in there or what builds are in there or what I added or took away. And that I call gentuemia. And you have the same problem in programming. Now you have all these things available to you in this giant miasma of the world, whether it's in the cloud or it's in, it's in GitHub or wherever it is, and you start pulling things in because you want it to work. And in hour 12, it's like, that, that'll work. That right there will work. I'm going to use it. I don't know what it does, and all the instructions are in Ukrainian, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use it because it works. The funny thing is about that as well is is uh, then you hand it to ops <laughs> and you have to run it yeah. in production. <laughs> and, and then, you know, it's, it's not well documented. It wasn't communicated to ops, you know, exactly how it's supposed to work other than the command that gets it started. Uh, you know, and then security comes in and says, we've done an audit of your code and you have these problems. And they say, yeah, it's going to take us 12 weeks to fix it. And we don't have 12 weeks because we're on our next sprint. <laughs> and and, and you're, you're sort of sitting there adding all these things that a lot of people don't have like security yeah. and ops. A lot of people are just like, done, build, it runs. Okay, release it, release it. And, you know, security right. is the same guy. So security's like, oh, I don't know how my notes are, but I don't have time. And I been, I've been awake for 36 hours. But security, yeah, it's okay, we got it. It'll be fine. And, you know, right. I mean, I mean, really, I mean, the small to medium enterprise, you see that all the time where either they don't even have it or they don't even have a DevOps model. All they have is a, is, is a coding team who have been up for four straight days trying to get this to work because marketing promised we would have a release on Friday. And, you know, there's 8 million people waiting on the release and everybody's going, is it done? Is it done? Is it done? And you're going, it's done. And they're like, did you check the security? Oh, uh, yeah, I did, I guess. I hope. Or, or like it gets the security and it's security. Why are you holding us up? Why are you oh, keeping yeah. this from going to production? And it's it's like, why didn't you give this to me two weeks ago? Absolutely. <laughs> and and I, I, you're absolutely right. I've been in that very same situation with clients where you're sitting there and, and, and you're being the security as, as a consultant and saying, this is not, I have no idea what you did here. There are calls going every which way on the earth. I don't know what these libraries are. Where did they come from? How did you validate them? Who wrote them? And they're going, 
marketing is calling down there and the VP of marketing is going, Doug, come on now. Why, why are you holding us up? And yeah, my answer is, well, I needed this about six months ago and I could evaluate it and, and it's not going to happen tonight. And they're like, oh, override. Yeah, we'll, I'll sign off on it. I just get, the, get the, the marketing yeah. VP to sign it. Then you can say I was never there. I don't know. It happened after I fell asleep. You know, it's funny because uh, under the general coding practices, under the uh, OWASP secure coding practices list, a check, one of their checkboxes says specifically use tested and approved managed code rather than creating new unmanaged code for common tasks, right? So <laughs> here's a situation where it's like, cool, maybe if your security person had an idea as to what you were trying to develop and can go out and like pre-approve these things, uh, you, you would be facing a lot less problems when it comes back to, okay, now it's got to go through security review. Well, it's using 12 of the 14 libraries that you've approved. You only have to look at two libraries and it's really easy comparatively. Uh, so it's, you know, it's funny, we've been mentioning DevOps a little bit throughout this conversation. And, and one of the funny things that uh, DevOps really is, is it's a process more than anything, but it's at the heart of it, it's communication. It teaches yeah. people that, hey, guess what? If you communicate often and early enough, you can actually solve all your problems. If you if Dev actually talks to Ops and says, by the way, this is how we're building it. This is on our roadmap and this is when we're releasing it by. And this is the our, you know infrastructure it needs to live on. And Ops knows that they can go and build it. If yeah. security knows these are the libraries that you're using or that you want to use, we can go find the right things to get the job done. Maybe it's not the exact library you thought of um, as just, you know, a good general practices communicate. It's, it's not even code anymore. It's talk to the people on the other sides of the fence or fences uh, and, you know, break down those and, walls. And, and hope you can even talk, speak the same language. I mean, I, I, I had a, a client not too long ago who was asking me about why can we not get anybody for this job? It was a security ops review. And, you know, you look at what that person needs to know, and there's a huge list here on, on OWASP of, of all these items. And just that is, is years and years of experience to be able to understand database. What kind of database? Is it Oracle? Is it something else? Uh, understanding error handling, crypto, all these things. And then the comp I was like, well, what are you paying? And the company's like, oh, we were paying up to 45000 depending on the level of experience. <laughs> Yeah, you know, right? and I was like, well, I heard there's some people looking for a move up from like maintenance who, you know, that, that guy that changes the light bulbs was looking for a job and, and maybe you can get them and they're not getting anybody because they wouldn't pay, but they've got a job description. That sounds like you almost need to be like, you know, 30 years of experience with all these different systems. And, and, you know, it's really challenging for that security ops person to even be able to ask the right questions. First time I ever saw a security ops person at all was as a result of an audit. I went and talked to the person. His background was in accounting. No offense again, accountants. He was a really good accountant. He was a really good auditor. Didn't know a thing about systems, but he'd been tasked with being the security ops person. He didn't even know what a database really was. He knew, I mean, you know, he knew the idea of a database, but he had no idea how it worked. He didn't know the names of any big ones. And he's yet he's supposed to somehow evaluate to these, these punches into the database. Are these things valid? Are they going to cause problems? Are they holes? And he didn't know what to ask. You know, that was why he had me. He's like, you need to tell me what, you know, I was writing questions for him while he was doing his meetings. Cause it's like, he's, you know, I'm like, what, you know, what database is it? Cause he didn't know. And then they're right. like, it's Oracle. And I'm like, okay, so, you know, how have you secured that? Or the, have you followed all these criteria? It's just, it's nuts. And, and so, I mean, just to circle back on it in a whole uh, kind of maybe lessons learned from today's, uh, you know, first segment of the podcast is if you're a developer and you want to get into security, there are a lot of people out there, myself included, who are happy to you know point you in the right direction. Yeah. And it's going to make you incredibly valuable. Likewise, 
If yes. you're a security professional and you want to go learn how to code, you are going to 10x your value inside of your organization and probably not 10x your salary, but you're certainly going to be able to make more as a result of it uh, than just being a security person that doesn't Absolutely. know anything about you know, databases or input validation, right? If you know those things, you are already more valuable than many of your peers in the industry. Well, at that even point. if even if you're just like, a, what do they call it in uh, DevOps, like a T? There's like three different kinds of people. So there's like I. Yeah, there's and there, there's those that are uh, slightly like it's. Uh, they have a little bit of uh, visibility across, and then they have a, a very deep. They have one one deep area. dive. So so that's a T yeah. is somebody that's got a broad background, but they got one deep dive expertise. Just become that person, and you'll you'll really make you'll make out a lot of money on that. I mean, if you can become the last one, which I can't remember what the one it's is. E. It's, I think it's an E. It's, Which it's, is you have like three levels of expertise. Yeah. But one's like really deep, one's slightly moderate, and one's you know. I mean that up at the, top. the one on the right side of that grid, whatever it is, is is like that's the you know I've got multiple levels of expertise and a lot of broad background. That's your people that have been in this field for a long time. But but if you can just be a T, you're going to really be impressive. So be a T at least. All right. So with that, remember, be a T. Be a T. Uh, we are going to take a short break and come back for the news. <laughs> 